All right, we are ready. Good morning again. You can turn to the Gospel of John. Um, and for the benefit of, of those joining us today, we preach through books of the Bible, and we started here in the Gospel of John, and we are in chapter 1, verse 29 this morning. So as you turn there, I thought it might be fun just to look at, at a little principle um, that extends through the book of Proverbs. It's the fear of the Lord, right? The book of Proverbs starts a little bit with just saying the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. And you get a little farther in Proverbs 9, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And the knowledge of the Holy One is insight, clearly pointing to people to God, to know Him. But here's the interesting thing. Jesus is also given the title Holy One in Acts chapter 3. Again, reminding us that Jesus is God. Jesus is God the Son. But what is meant by fear of the Lord? At least in this context, right? It is a very broad concept. I'm not going to cover it this morning, but there is one part of it that is very relevant to our passage in John. So just remember the rule that we always follow. Scripture interprets Scripture. We know that there's no conflicting passages in God's Word. It is His Word. So when you think of this, you think, well, fear and grace, they must not conflict. They must go hand in hand. The fear of God must also go with the grace of God that we see in Jesus Christ. So how might we look at this? We look at this saying, well, who was Proverbs written by? It was written by King Solomon. Well, what are kings meant to do? Well, Deuteronomy 17, God commands that when the king of Israel is enthroned, he says, he shall write for himself a book, a copy of this law, and it shall be with him, and he shall read it, read in it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God. Okay, so we see elsewhere in the Old Testament that the king is to meditate on the law of God day and night. Well, what is the law of God? How, how might we figure out what this is well we turn back and say well the law of God is the first five books of the Old Testament and if you turn back uh, to where God gave the law to the people it brings you to Exodus 19 and 20 in Exodus 19 verse 10 God told Moses go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day for on the third day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people and then God gave them several warnings. He said, if you come near the mountain, you'll die. If you try to get a glimpse of God, you will immediately die. He's saying, even all cleaned up, even consecrated, the best you can do, you cannot step into the presence of a holy, perfect, awesome creator God. Right? So then God speaks to the people. And in Exodus 20, verse 18, after God had spoken, we read, Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled. And they stood far off and said to Moses, You speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be always before you. Now we know what the fear of God is. The fear of God is then to recognize God's awesome, unapproachable holiness, his majesty, his power, and that to approach God, we need a mediator. We need a mediator, someone in between. And that is what it is driving us to understand. 
the Israelites called upon Moses, but the Bible tells us he was only a foreshadowing of the perfect mediator who would come, the once for all mediator. Scripture says, right, there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. And we know Jesus said, right, in John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You see, sin had created a separation between people and God. So we need a mediator uh, to mediate this new covenant relationship that we have with God. A mediator who can present us to God wholly on his account, not on ours. And the fear of God then drives us to recognize that we need Jesus. Despite what the world might tell you, we need Jesus. So we pick up in John uh, chapter 1, verse 29, because here Jesus appears on the scene of John the Baptist's ministry, and John bestows on Jesus its most profound title, and it points to the perfect mediation between God and man, because here you read Jesus is the very Lamb of God. He is the Lamb of God. Let's read our text beginning in verse 29, and Speaking of John the Baptist, as I said last time, it's a little complicated because we have John the Apostle writing the gospel and John the Baptist who will be the focal point in a way of this text. So when I'm talking about John, it'll be John the Baptist. And if I want to talk about the Apostle John, I will say the Apostle John. So here we see that he is John the Baptist. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the spirit descend from heaven like a dove and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the spirit descend and remain. This is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. The next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word and the clarity with which you speak to our hearts. We pray that the Spirit illuminates the text to us and uh, changes us, ever conforming us to the image of Christ, uh, making us more like you and living and walking in your love, your grace, and your mercy. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, the Apostle John has given us this timeline, which is kind of interesting in this first chapter. So we're opening up here on the next day it says. And this is the day after John had been questioned by the religious leaders who came down from Jerusalem. We covered that last week. And it says he saw Jesus coming toward him. Now, the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, give an account of the first meeting between Jesus and John the Baptist, right? And it tells us, just look at one, Mark chapter 1, verse 9. We're reading of what took place nearly a month and a half before where we're picking up in the Gospel of John. And it says, In those days Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove Jesus out into the wilderness and, 
and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. So where are we picking up? We are picking up as Jesus is now returning from the wilderness where he was tempted. It's been 40 days since John last saw him. He has just given a defense last week that we saw uh, to, the, to the religious leaders. And now he looks out and he sees Jesus. He bears witness with this spectacular statement. Behold, the Lamb of God. And so we're going to cover the text this morning under three headings. You have them in your bulletins there at the back. God's Lamb, our Savior, bearing witness and never give up. Never give up. See, the Lamb of God is a powerful statement about who Jesus is. Right? We know from the beginning. We know that when the eternal Son of God was conceived by the Holy Spirit, the angel spoke to, Je- to, the, to Joseph and said, You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. We know his name. His name is Jesus. But if you do a study throughout Scripture, there are over 100 names and titles and descriptive references given to Christ Jesus, the Son of God, right? And one of the most familiar titles to us at least if you look at lyrics to popular worship songs and other Christian music, or you look at artwork, is to think of Jesus as the perfect lamb or the lamb of God. And because of that, it's usually a little surprising to people to realize that there's only two books of the Bible that use that title for Jesus, and both are written by the Apostle John. We have it here in our text this morning where John the Baptist cries it out, And you have it in the book of Revelation, the conquering lamb. And that is quite interesting. There in chapter 5, John, the apostle John, is told, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered. And so what does John do? It's a powerful statement. Christ, in power and glory, has won. This gives us confidence. So turning, you can imagine what goes on in his mind. He's turning the lion. I'm expecting to see the conquering lion. And he turns and writes, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. And then he hears as thousands of thousands of angels were saying loud with a voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing." So when John the Baptist looked at Jesus and he declared, Behold, the Lamb of God, it carried deep meaning. And it meant something far more obvious to the Jews in the first century than it even does to us. I hope it means a lot to us because we have free access to the Word of God. It means God has sent His Christ, the Lamb, our mediator. He has come. And we know that we need this. And the Jews then knew that they needed this. We need a mediator because the wages of sin is death. Spiritual death and physical death. If the Lord doesn't return beforehand, we will all meet that end. Romans 5.12 tells us sin came into the world through one man, Adam, and death through sin. So death spread to all people because all sinned. So all of us are equal in this way, right? We're all plagued with the consequences of sin. And then God revealed clearly to his people that sin and separation from God could only be removed by a blood sacrifice. 
saying, in essence, to approach God, you can only do so when a substitute is offered in your place, when it dies because that's the death you owe. Do you see that in Leviticus 17 and, of course, Hebrews 9.22, that most famous of passages, without the shedding of blood, right, without the death of a substitute, there is no forgiveness of sins. So the imagery of the sacrifices was well ingrained into the people of that time. In order to come into the presence of God for worship, for prayer, you needed a sacrifice. And one of the images that was particularly ingrained in their minds was the sacrificial lamb. It was through those daily sacrifices that God actually revealed his mercy and his grace and his love to his people. Because sinful as they were, and sinful as we are, he provided a way for us to come into his presence. Now, one of the things that would have been front in their mind is certainly the Passover lamb, right? And Exodus 12 tells us about the Passover lamb. God instructed Moses, go and warn the people of the terror that is about to come on the land when the angel of death is going to sweep through and kill all the firstborn in Egypt. And yet, he offered them a way to escape the wrath of God by sacrificing an unblemished lamb and putting its blood on the doorposts and lintel of the houses. And God promised, he said, when I see the blood, I will pass over you and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. And the Israelites, of course, were given that ceremony. They were perpetually to remember this year upon year, being reminded of how God's wrath passed them over because of the sacrificial lamb. And they did this right up to when Jesus eats the final Passover meal and institutes the Lord's Supper so that we remember every time we take it, the sacrifice that was made to bring us into the presence of God. But I want to ask you, have you ever, uh, we're very familiar, I'm assuming everyone in this group today is super familiar with that 10th plague and, and knows that story well. Have you ever paused to think through what that story truly tells us about the Lamb? God did not promise to save all of the Israelites. Right? That wasn't actually what his promise was. His promise was that he would spare those who had faith in his promise of deliverance through the blood of the lamb, right? That was the only way to be spared. You had to trust God and rely upon the sacrifice that he instructed. And that is simply the unfolding of God's redemptive plan that we see throughout scripture. It's always pointing to salvation by faith in the substitute provided by God. It foreshadows salvation based solely on God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ, the once for all sacrifice and uh, we know that throughout the gospels Jesus is often linked to the Passover and the Passover lamb you know as we get to the end of John in that passion week we will see in John 19 that Jesus is handed over to be crucified on the sixth hour of the day of preparation at the very time when lambs were being slaughtered throughout Jerusalem so it has a powerful image and by calling Jesus the Lamb of God, John was telling the people, look to him. It will be because of his substitutionary atonement, his shed blood on the cross, that God's wrath will pass over you for all eternity if you just place your faith in Christ. We're a week off. It would have been actually a great sermon topic last week when we celebrated the Lord's Supper because 
you read those precious words, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, right? Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. He wants us to remember always what it takes to mediate our forgiveness and live in relationship to him because of his grace and his mercy in providing his son to take our place. Now, for the Israelites, it wasn't just Passover. They were reminded every single day of the year, twice per day, of God's holiness and their sin. In Exodus 30 or 29, verse 38, it says on the altar they were to offer two lambs a year old day by day regularly. One lamb you shall offer in the morning and the other lamb you shall offer at twilight. You have to remember, if you're there at that time then, you're a Jew going out to listen to John, you're going out after a lamb has already been sacrificed that morning. When you return to Jerusalem that evening, a lamb will be sacrificed again, continuously, always reminding you. So none of these people who are hearing John make this declaration could miss the significance of his words, that this man is the lamb of God. There are all kinds of references we can go through the Old Testament. I want to just bring you to one more example because this will be relevant later on. You're all familiar with the story of Abraham and Isaac on Mount Moriah, right? God promised Abraham and Sarah a son. Isaac was born. Then he instructs Abraham to take Isaac up on the mountain and sacrifice him. And in Genesis 22, Isaac says, we have the fire in the wood, dad. But where is the lamb for a burnt offering? And Abraham said to him, God will provide. God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. And we know the rest of the story that God did provide. He did intervene based on the faith of Abraham. He, of course, saved Isaac, but he provided the lamb stuck in a thicket. So Jesus, back to John. He's approaching. John sees him. And he cries out to the people, behold the Lamb of God. Now, of God here is just kind of an origin statement. It means this is God's Lamb. This is the Lamb provided by God, right? And John tells us exactly why he came. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You see, the greatest need of any person is not our felt needs. It's not that we wish we had more money or a better job or better relationships or that uh, a better car or a better house, whatever that is. The most pressing need for every man, woman, and child is to be put in right standing with God for all eternity. Because e- everyone who has broken God's holy law, and that is all of us, right? Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Everyone actually stands condemned, fairly owed nothing but God's wrath. And in that condition, despite what you hear sort of touted in the world, God's not for us, he's against us. Because justice demands that sinners be punished. But there's a promise. Because God loves the world such that he would send his only son, the lamb that takes away the sin of the world, for all who believe in him such that they will never perish but have eternal life. It is spectacular love. It is amazing grace that the Lamb of God came to take away sin because it is something we have no power to do. No amount of money can buy it. No stack of good deeds will earn it. But Christ came to save sinners. He provided a solution to an otherwise unsolvable problem. Now there's a couple of things to take note of in this purpose statement. He came to take away the sin of the world. 
Well, the first thing is Jesus came to take away sin. Singular. Does that, does that look weird to you when you actually look at it hard? He came to take away sin. Singular, not sins. Plural. The sin of the world. Well, well what does that emphasize to you? It, it emphasizes that Jesus did not come to take away particular sins that he atoned for and left some other sins out such that we can look at those people and say, their sin, obviously, they, you know, that's really bad. My sin, ah, that's fine. I can always overlook that. No, he didn't leave any out. Jesus paid it all. He bore the penalty for all sin, every sin of everyone who repents and believes in him for forgiveness. Listen, the only sin for which a person will be eternally condemned is dying in unbelief. That's it. That's it. All are called to turn to him. Refusing to do that is the only sin. Everyone who turns to Christ in faith, everyone who calls upon the Lord will be saved. And the second thing that should jump out to people, it does to some, is world. We're not going to dwell on this a lot here. It'll come up later in John. Just remember, John is speaking to the Jews. We've already seen some of this. They believe salvation is exclusive. When the Messiah comes, it will be to judge the Gentiles. It, it will be to lift the nation of Israel right there in that moment and judge the Gentiles. So it is making it abundantly clear that Jesus atoned for the sin of all people without distinction. Jews, Gentiles, what, whatever you are, call yourself, right? But it also points to how will this be done? How will this be done? And this is where calling Jesus the Lamb of God, particularly to this first century Jewish audience, is so powerful. As you go through the Old Testament, you will see that God unfolded his redemptive plan over time, not all at once. And throughout Scripture, you start to see a progression of sacrificial lambs. At first, it was one sacrifice per person. You can go all the way back to Abel this right but you can think of Abraham and Isaac in that story one sacrifice per person well then you consider Passover well now it's one sacrifice per family and if you're a poor family you can be with other families so one sacrifice for a family unit by Leviticus 16 you start seeing things where you can have one sacrifice for the nation of Israel still exclusive and now with the coming of Christ you have one sacrifice one perfect lamb that is sufficient for all people who believe and follow Jesus for all time. For all time and all people. Hebrews 10, 10 through 12 presents this kind of this culmination of the sacrificial system in I think very clear terms. It says we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. We're not waiting for anything else. Every high priest stands daily at his service offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never actually take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Just as he cried out from the cross, it is finished. It is finished. You can add nothing to it. You can take nothing away from it. He paid the price. Every sacrifice in the Old Testament was meant to point to Christ, the perfect Lamb of God, but they were always temporary. They had to be done over and over. All they did was remind you of your sin and the holiness of God and the need for a mediator. And then it would start again. Hebrews 10, 4 says it's impossible, right, for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin in any kind of permanent way. 
And yet God would provide a sacrifice that would fully satisfy his wrath against us and reconcile us to himself. How? Well, the infinite worth of his son's blood was not only sufficient for one person or one family or one nation. It was sufficient to atone for the sins of all people who will come to him in faith. All people without distinction. Absolutely anybody. Jew, Gentile, anyone who places their faith in Jesus and he takes away their sin, not temporarily, permanently. For all eternity. So by using this title, John the Baptist should have given everyone listening the answer to how Jesus would take away sin. He would take it away because he would bear that penalty. He would bear our sin in our place. In the words of Isaiah, Isaiah 53, 5, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. But the Lord has laid on him, on Christ, the iniquity of us all, our substitute. Now I want, to, I want you to imagine you're there that day. You're there, you came to hear John preach in the wilderness. He starts, he's on his usual fiery path, repent, 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 right? We've seen how he calls people to repentance and prepare their hearts for the Messiah. And all of a sudden, he stops and he stares in somewhat amazement because he shouts out, kind of blurts out, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. What would you do? I think you'd look where he was looking. I don't know if he pointed, but, but you would look where he was looking, maybe where he was pointing, and what would you be staring at? This is where it gets tricky. I'll tell you what you'd be staring at. A man standing by the water, dressed in the same way as everybody else. This isn't the movies. I, there was nothing special about the appearance of Jesus. He wasn't glowing. The Bible says he had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. It wasn't celebrity status, right? If you just looked, he was a man like us. He had to be made like us, not different than us, like us in every way but for sin. So what would you expect? You'd expect the crowds to mob around Jesus. What does this mean? How are you the Lamb of God? Teach us. It's not quite what happened but it brings us to our second heading, which is bearing witness to Jesus. What you see what John does here as we go is what a good witness to Christ does. It's not just telling people what Jesus did. We, we need to do that, but we've all had these conversations. You can tell a person, Jesus obeyed God's law perfectly, and unfortunately what the world hears is, yeah, 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 I know he's a good moral person, a pretty good example. That's not quite what we mean by that. You can tell him that Jesus died on, their cro on the cross for their sins. Sounds pretty nice, too. But you haven't really pricked the heart yet. And so, for some, it will. But for others, it's just like, well, that's good. I, I like that. It really demands nothing. It demands nothing. You have to tell people these things. But to be a witness to the beauty, the grace, the mercy... The love of Jesus, you have to witness not only to what he did, but who he is, who he is. 
He is the eternal Son of God come in the flesh to save his people, to take away their sins. And if he is the eternal Son of God, then that demands a response. So John starts in verse 30. He says, look, behold the Lamb. He's looking at the people, maybe no reaction. And he says, this is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. Now, this is actually the third time. We're not going to belabor this sentence because we've covered it before in John. It's the third time, though, that you see John stressing that he is less important, completely submitted to Jesus. It emphasizes what James Montgomery Boyce says is the first great principle for being a witness to Jesus. And he writes it this way. The witness must recognize that he or she has no independent importance in himself not about me it's about jesus right you can't be an effective witness if you put your honor or your pride or some material need in your life first it has to be about jesus it has to be about loving that person now more than that john is pointing to the fact that jesus is uncreated and eternal right john was created he was born to elizabeth and zechariah but jesus was He just was. He always was. He was uncreated. He was eternal as the Son of God. In other words, if Jesus was only a man like us, just like us, we would be like Paul said, right? We would be like those who should be most pitied because we would be left in our sin. He would just be another man. But that Jesus is God and man, truly God, truly man, means he is worthy of of our submission, our obedience, our praise, our worship to be first place in our lives. Well, John continued in verse 31 to give witness. He says, I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness, I saw the spirit descend from heaven like a dove and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the spirit descend and remain This is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. Now twice here, John says he did not know Jesus. And he may not have, right? He he was cousins with Jesus. Elizabeth and Mary were related. We don't know like how distant cousin, who knows, but they were related. But we are also told in Luke, particularly chapter 1, verse 80, that John lived in the wilderness until his ministry started. So it's possible that they didn't meet. But more likely what John is meaning here when he didn't know Jesus is that he didn't know Jesus to be the Messiah until he baptized him and saw the sign that God had promised, until God revealed it to him. This is not a lot different than when Peter claims Jesus to be the Christ, and we know what Jesus said to him, Simon Barjona, right? Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven has revealed this to you. Right? And so God, the Father, had told John, when, when the Christ comes, you'll see a sign. Here's what that sign is. Now, John knew there was something different about Jesus. That much is clear from Matthew chapter 3, when Jesus arrives on the scene to be baptized. And John looks at him and says, I should be baptized by you, but you come to me. And Jesus says, no, this is necessary to fulfill all righteousness. And John baptizes him. But it wasn't really until after Jesus arose from the baptismal waters where John actually saw the sign. 
And God had revealed the identity of Jesus now to him. He saw the Holy Spirit descend like a dove and remain on Jesus. And and that is significant. It's not only a preordained and prearranged sign from God that revealed Christ to John and also to Israel, but it is the divine sign that the Spirit uh, was remaining with Jesus so that he would be the giver of the Holy Spirit to all who follow Christ as Lord. We'll see this much later in John chapter 15, where Jesus promises he will send the Holy Spirit who proceeds from God the Father, given by God the Son to empower Christians to bear witness to him and to live for him. And it was fulfilled, of course, at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. The church baptized by the Spirit to be empowered for holiness and righteousness and for gospel witness to the world. It's an important thing. John contrasts right here his baptism, my baptisms with water, and there is the baptism by the sp- of the Spirit by Jesus. He's not saying that water baptism is unimportant. Baptism with water today, it is important. It's a matter of obedience to Jesus Christ. It's something we do and are called to do to be identified as part of Christ's body, as a follower of Jesus Christ. But water baptism won't save you. We, We know that. We see people who were baptized and unsaved, like Simon the Magician. You see others who were not baptized with water but are clearly saved. Luke 23 gives us the prime example, that repentant thief on the cross. Oh, he, he was baptized, not with water. By faith, he received the Spirit, right? Jesus gives to all. It, it implanted grace in his heart. He would be with Jesus in paradise that day. Maybe someday we will all meet him. And what a fascinating story that would be. Scripture says anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. Romans 8, 9. So he baptizes with the Spirit. This is important. John wants the world to know. It's important for a lot of reasons. 2 Corinthians 3, verses 16 and 17, they tell us uh, that where the Spirit of God has been given, there is freedom from the bondage of sin. doesn't mean we won't sin, but we're not enslaved to sin because we're made new in Christ, and by his Spirit we are being transformed into his image from one degree of glory to another. So as one commentator says, just as Jesus is superior because he actually forgives our sins for all time, so Jesus is also superior because he sends the Holy Spirit to deliver us from the power of sin. Power of sin. He doesn't just mediate between us and God for forgiveness, but for newness of life, eternal life. The spirit he baptizes with is the Holy Spirit (laughs) foreshadowed and prophesied by Ezekiel. In chapter 36 of Ezekiel, verse 26, God says, And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. See, the Holy Spirit who indwells all believers creates in us a desire for Jesus, to know him to grow in our knowledge of him, to love him, to obey him, to tell others about him. And so John makes one closing claim in verse 34. He says, I have seen and have borne witness, right? I'm a broken record. I've told you this many times that this is the son of God. So easy for us to believe sitting here. But imagine if he's pointing at a man 
no matter if he was taller than everybody or shorter. I mean, whatever Jesus actually looked like as a man, he said, this is the Son of God. You have to remember that when John baptized Jesus, it was somewhere over 40 days before this, we know that as he lifted Jesus from the water, that the heavens opened, he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest, and a voice came out of the heavens, God the Father, and said, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. This is the Son of God, and as God the Son, then only Jesus is worthy to be the Lamb of God, who can die in our place, and therefore Jesus is the only one worthy of our worship. To string a couple of verses together to emphasize this point, though he was God the Son, he was born in the likeness of men and humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth, and yet for our sake God made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. What an amazing thing. We should stand in awe of this. It's not just what Jesus has done that is important. It is who he is and what he has done. As the Son of God in the flesh, he has to be preeminent, as we're told in Colossians. First place in all things. Because listen, nothing will matter when this short life of ours actually passes away than where we stand in relation to Jesus Christ. Did we love him? Did we seek to honor him? Did we boldly stand for the truth in a dying world and call people to turn to him in repentance and faith and show them the love and the mercy and the grace that he freely offers to all who come to him? That's what we must do. What we have seen last week and this week, that John was both humble and bold, right, at the same time in his gospel call. And yet we reach the end of this day with that verse and nothing seemed to happen. At least nothing we read about. He has shouted out, look, there's the true lamb. That is the true savior. That is the one to whom you must turn. He is the son of God. And you don't read, everyone turned from John and mobbed Jesus. That's not actually what you read. So let me ask you, when should John give up? When should he give up? This is a repeated message. His preaching didn't seem to be bearing fruit. Should he change the message? Maybe this gospel of God is not good enough. Should he change it? And maybe then they'll listen. Maybe people don't want to repent. They don't want that message. Well, maybe I'll put it more specifically. When should you give up? When should you give up when a family member or a friend or a colleague will not listen and has no interest in turning from sin and turning to Jesus? I've been asked that actually several times as a pastor because I think our hearts break in those situations. And we start to almost not want to believe, but it gives us some comfort to say, well, well, maybe this just isn't going to happen. God's not going to save them. And, and I, I can stop. It's too painful. When should you give up? When should you give up when a family member seems to hate the very mention of Jesus Christ? You're going to tell me about him again? Again, you're a broken record. The answer is never. Never give up. Never give up. You have to understand the disciples of Jesus wondered this at some times. When the rich young man came to Jesus and he gave him his instructions and it tells us he went away sorrowful, uh, unsaved, unrepentant, the disciples uh, kind of had this reaction of this seems really hard, Jesus. Who then can be saved? 
And we read in Matthew 10, 26, Jesus looked at them and said, with man it's impossible, but with God all things are possible. We're told in 2 Timothy, the Lord knows those who are his. We're only called to be faithful witnesses to Jesus Christ. We must continue to witness. So let's close with that last heading, never give up. John 1, 35 through 37. The next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. So here we are, day three. Short glimpse of the ministry of John. He testified to the Jewish leaders. He bore witness to Christ, to the crowds, and that had to include his disciples around him. Certainly they had to have heard what he had declared. And now on the third day, he stands there again with at least two of his disciples. And you don't know what's going on in their minds. Perhaps they were still pondering what John had declared the day before, and they're looking. Did they want to follow Jesus? Are they sure? Is John sure about this? Maybe they ignored it. But then Jesus walks by, and John starts in again. Like, there he is. Behold the Lamb of God. This is the preacher with only one sermon, right? This is, he's a broken record. Every time he sees Jesus, all he can do is talk about him, to, to venerate him, to, to bow before him. This is the Lamb of God. And uh, while the text stops here, you have to think, he didn't just say that and turn around. No, he's going to start preaching again about who Jesus is, what Jesus has done, what he's offered, calling for repentance, pointing to faith. And this time when the disciples hear it, when it sinks in, this is the one from God. This is the one to whom all the sacrifices point. This is the one who God sent to mediate between us and God forever. They finally respond. And it says they follow Jesus. How is it that people are moved to follow Jesus and turn from sin and trust in Christ? By the persistent witness of Christians who proclaim the saving person and work of Jesus, the Lamb of God. And so when you meet resistance, and we all do, sometimes it's ugly and sometimes it's just people ignoring, there are two things that I'll give you that we're always called to do. The first is pray. Pray and pray and pray some more. Pray that God will open their heart. Pray that God will save them. That he'll open their eyes to the dreadful nature of sin, but open them even wider to the wonderful joy of forgiveness and eternal life in Jesus Christ. And the second thing is that we have to be the light in a dark world. We have to live lives that point to Jesus, and our words should back that up. We have to speak of his glory, his divine person, his saving work. And we'll close with this. Second Timothy reminds us that through our prayer, through our witness to others, that God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. What an amazing hope we can put in that. Nobody's ever lost forever. We just keep witnessing, keep praying, witnessing that somehow they will know the fear of the Lord. Like you see throughout scripture that they'll see that God is awesome and holy, righteous and perfectly good and realize that to approach him, we need a mediator and that God provided one. He provided his son, the lamb, 
to pay the price we owe, to open the door to a loving relationship with God if we'll just trust in Jesus Christ. But listen, the world will never know the truth unless we speak it. Unless we speak it. We must point to Christ as the perfect Lamb of God even if we become the broken record that John appeared to be. There's no greater gift we could give to the world than knowing Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, oh, what a wonderful gift you have given to us. You picked our time, you picked our place. All of us here this morning offer our thanksgiving to you because in choosing that, you chose us to bring us into the knowledge of the beauty, the wonder, the grace, the mercy, the love of Jesus, to know what he has done, to know who he is. Lord, we know that our knowledge is, is the tip of the iceberg, that for all eternity we will seek to know him more. You are the eternal God. We are finite creatures. Lord, thank you for our salvation. Lord, we pray that you would empower us, embolden us, lift us up when things are looking down so that when the world looks our way, they wonder who we belong to, how we live the way we live, how we love the way we love. And so, Lord, we just pray that we would be beacons of light in this world and when given the opportunity that you would give us the words to speak and the confidence and boldness to speak them. I pray for each and every one of these dear ones as they go out into the world this week, that you would guard and protect them, that they would walk in recognition that your mercy is fresh every morning and we have new opportunities every day to live for your Son, our Lord, Jesus, in whose name we pray, amen.